Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. VR training platforms like the one developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International are helping surgeons train over and over before operating on real patients. As you practice each skill, the muscle memory starts to develop. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Brett McKay here, and welcome to another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. Surviving in the wild can seem like a romantic proposition, at least as it often plays out in popular culture and our imagination. We picture ourselves confidently navigating the obstacles of nature, pulling trout out of mountain streams, and building a snug shelter inside a tree. But the reality of wilderness survival isn't so rosy. Few people know that better than Jim Baird. Jim and his brother won the fourth season of Alone, a reality show that's actually real and leaves contestants in the wild to face the elements and live off the land. Today on the podcast, Jim shares his experiences surviving on northern Vancouver Island for 75 days and what he learned from them as to what's true about survival, what's simply a myth. After the show's over, check out our show notes at aom.is slash survival myths. Jim Baird, welcome to the show. Hi, thank you for having me, Brett. So you and your brother were the winners of History Channel's survival reality show Alone. For those who aren't familiar with the show, what's the setup and how long did you and your brother last on it? Okay, yeah. Well, Alone is a legit survival show. There's no camera crews. You have to film everything yourself. One of the things they do is they teach you in-depth how to capture footage you have to not only survive out there by yourself but you also have to film it while you're doing it which makes it way harder because you have this other whole task at hand on top of just trying to survive right so it's like another enormous job you have to do and how it works is that uh, there's typically individuals go out there alone film their survival stint and then whoever lasts the longest wins a half a million big ones. Now, on the season my brother and I were on, instead, each season has sometimes a little bit of a different twist. Well, ours had a big twist because they did teams of family members. There was brothers, there was father and son, there was even husband and wife. However, those team members had to start separately. So they're calling it alone, lost, and found. So literally, I'm dropped off by a helicopter in the wilds of northern Vancouver Island. I have a very small amount of rations, probably the equivalent to like a light lunch. I have a compass. I have basic survival equipment on me, no map. And I'm told, you have to find your brother. He's at the end of this compass bearing. And then the helicopter takes off. 
and I start walking through some of the craziest terrain on planet Earth that you can possibly walk through. And that has a lot to do with the logging there and the regrowth, let alone the many, many lakes and ponds and streams and undulating mountainous terrain. And anyways, so each group had to do this. One person had to find the other. And when you find them, you had to survive together as a team, which, you know, is is good in some ways because you're not alone. But, you know, also sometimes, you know, two people hungry, you know, we can all get a little hangry, can start to drive each other crazy a bit. And also it's taxing because there's only a finite amount of calories in a given area. And when you're hungry, you don't really have that energy to move too far, potentially to find no more food if you do move. So anyways, my brother and I ended up surviving out there all in. We were out there for 75 days through the late fall and winter. Basically, you know, all the food you have, you can bring limited rations. We brought, I think, two pounds of pemmican for 75 days. But other than that, absolutely everything that we ate was was forage, you know, harvested somehow off the land. And we ended up winning after a 75 day stint. It was the rainiest November on record. And we're talking about one of the rainiest places in the continent. And it was the coldest winter in 30 years. So when you have that really damp, you know, northern rainforest dampness and that cold, you know, it's it's the opposite of a dry cold, man. And you just feel that right in your bones. But we managed to pull it off and uh, come home with the W. I think I lost about 26% of my body mass. Man, that's a lot of weight. So did you have any survival experience before you went on alone? So that's interesting because I, I didn't think I really did, but it kind of turns out that I did. And, and by that, I mean, you know, you think of survival for me was something I learned and practiced to an extent because as somebody who has an, a kind of a background in more expeditionary travel. So my big thing is, you know, I'll take a canoe and enough gear and some food to be in the wilderness for a month. And I'll travel, you know, in extremely remote areas in Alaska and the Canadian Arctic on point A to point B expeditions that include, you know, serious demanding whitewater rapids to be run, portages or portages, as they say with the English pronunciation of the the French word, that can take multiple days. And, you know, upriver travel and all this kind of stuff. Uh, Sometimes I'll do those alone. I'll tackle some of the most demanding whitewater rivers. For example, in the Yukon Territory, I've traveled across northern Quebec and Labrador well off of the road system. So, you know, I I do this. I've, I've walked, you know, solo in the Arctic in winter on remote trips that have taken up to 36 days. So, you know, that same year before going on alone, I walked solo across the northern Ungava Peninsula, essentially Arctic Quebec. And that was a 36-day solo expedition in the winter. So, but I'm not like lighting bow drill fires. I'm not, you know, completely, I'm not eating lizards and, and uh, you know, flint napping arrowheads. And I'm not doing these kind of core sort of skills and activities out there that you typically might relate to survival. So I wasn't really sure how well I would do against people that have those sort of raw traditional skills. However, 
it turned out that you know really just having real bush time real outdoor time in real in real places where you're forced to you know get a fire going or you're pooched or you're hypothermatic where you can't just kind of go back inside or walk back to your truck so those real situations and the, the drive to push on when you know things are scary and things aren't going well and you don't have any way to get out of there other than you know on your own two feet so those things proved to be the survival skills that um that were really helpful for me out there so you mentioned contestants on a loan are able to bring a certain number of items with them you guys brought some pemmican like what else did you guys choose to bring and did they turn out to be like what turned out to be the most helpful and useful yeah so you know every everybody can bring stuff so you you get 10 items you also get some items that you automatically are allowed to bring to like clothes. I think a sleeping bag was one that you automatically were allowed to bring, but then you have to pick 10 items and you can't just like pick any 10 items. Like you can't bring like a shotgun and a case of scotch. You know what I mean? You have to bring an items, unfortunately, but you have to bring items out of a specific list, right? So you can't just bring any pot. If you choose a pot, it has to be X, you know, so it can't be bigger than, uh, you know, what, what specified. I forget what that was. So we brought a fishing line and hooks. We brought snare wire or trapping wire. We brought a bow and arrow. We brought a tarp. We brought a pot. And what else did we bring? Oh yeah, we brought an axe. We brought a saw. We brought a net, a gill net, but it was only it could only be like two meters long you know, which is barely any over two yards long, right? And not very tall. So very limiting um, the size of gill net you could bring. But, you know, one of the things that I kind of learned about is that a lot of kind of emphasis is put on what did they bring? And the show kind of emphasizes what survival items are they bringing out there, right? But, you know, what we learned is that even though there's a lot of emphasis on these things, what will they bring? At the end of the day, I don't think they really make that big of a deal. I mean, I think that the fishing line and hooks definitely helped us. You could have picked parachute cord, but you were only allowed like 50 feet of it. And so even though we weren't allowed to actually actively trap, and because there are rules, right? You can't, it's just not all, all no holds barred survival. Like you can't, catch seagulls because they're protected we were canadian so canadians could have got their trapping license in british columbia because but we're we were the only canadians on the show and americans couldn't so in order to make it fair there was no trapping on top of that there's no rabbits there's very few squirrels and there's not really a lot to trap for food there anyway so we brought this snare wire trapping wire and we used it because we were allowed a significant amount and all different gauges of it we were we were able to use it to build a tarp canoe we were able to use it to build our shelter and a bunch of other things and the other thing that came in handy that we brought was uh, just fishing line and hooks and in our gill net we did catch some stuff with it for sure but because of the tides and the waves bringing in all this bull kelp and the barnacles everywhere you know really to set up this gill net was honestly at the end of the day might have been even though we did get some food with it might have been more work than it was really worth gotcha so your fishing net the fishing line came in handy sounds like the saw and the axe came in handy for firewood that looked like it that was very useful that's true actually yeah that's true we we brought this big saw i don't know how good it really was in the end we should have brought 
DeSaw had more experience with. But yeah, I think, you know, cutting wood because it was so cold out, you know, to be able to cook, warm up, dry stuff out, I, I think, and just for morale, I think that was pretty important. Uh, the bow and arrow, not useful? Well, you know what? It's like, so the rules were when we were out there is that, first of all, there's very few deer on Vancouver Island, right? So we could get a deer, but we were only allowed to get a buck and you weren't allowed to get a doe, which greatly reduces your odds. And then we were allowed to get bear. However, we weren't allowed to bait bear, you know, which we could have gotten some, you know, rotting fish or whatever and, and baited bears, which is, you know, the way to do it really. And so that's, pretty much a shot in the dark also you know on a lot of other seasons on vancouver island there's bears everywhere well you know we got in a little later than other seasons significantly and you know bears are smart they knew that it was probably a cold winter on the way and they decided to i think to just shut her down so you know they don't sometimes they don't even really hibernate on vancouver island because it's you know warmer climate but i i feel like they did that year because they knew that you know the coldest winter in 30 years was upon them so you guys were dropped off separately how far apart were you separated and how long did it take you to get back to each other yeah so we were only 10 miles apart which seems like you know the thing you can kind of bang off in an afternoon but what most people don't realize is how far that really is. You know, it's quite far north and daylight was already minimal. So we weren't getting much daylight. It wasn't safe to travel at night. So we weren't even allowed to travel at night. And the terrain was so crazy that 10 miles took me eight days. And, you know, you're talking about, I remember one time I was traveling and there was a bunch of trees that had fallen down on top of each other and were all crisscrossed. And then there was this salal, dense salal bushes growing up everywhere that's hard to penetrate. And I'm using all my energy carrying a pretty heavy pack and I climb way up all these crisscross trees stacked on top of each other on the side of a hill. And I climb way, way up this thing, probably 20 feet in the air. And I step over and I climb all the way back down and into the bushes. And, you know, I'd made it like three yards and that to get up and down probably took me like 20 minutes. Then I, I struggle pushing myself through trying to stay on my bearing, you know, climbing up. Uh, like there was one part where it would have been considered a technical climb for me to just get up a cliff that I couldn't really get around to stay on my compass bearing. So, you know, if I'd fallen, I would have gotten severely injured and I'm climbing up this thing with a heavy pack, right? Then I hit a lake and it's a big lake with all kinds of bays and steep mountainous, thick, dense hills all around because this part of the island had, had the crap logged out of it right so you know so then you got to pick a bearing you got to pick an object that's on your bearing on the other side of the lake and then you got to walk around the lake to get to where that object is but you'd be surprised at how hard it is to tell where that object is when you're on the other side of the lake so then you you typically what i would do is i'd mark 
the other side where I take the bearing from. Uh, but you know, some of these lakes were big and it's hard to see things across the lake. So I'd get sticks or I'd look at my back. If there's a tree that was, you know, obvious, it stood out. I would just use that, but I'd be stick sticks in the water and, and bows. And I try to mark that. And then I go and weave my way all the way around this walking on the shore. And then, you know, try to pick up my bearing and I just walk this enormous distance out of my way um, and to get to the other side of the lake, which might have been, you know, 300 meters, right? And so 10 miles walking through this is extremely different than what one might think in a typical situation, walking 10 miles would be. Plus, you also are dealing with the lack of food. All I was eating out there was wild mushrooms. And I just grabbed like a gator because one of the things we're allowed to bring is like ankle gator. So I used that as a bag and I, I tied the end together and I clipped it to the strap of my bag up by my shoulder upside down. And as, as I travel, I'd collect oyster mushrooms and winter chanterelles. I'd be throwing like banana slugs in there. I had an opportunity to try to get a, a grouse and I whipped a stick at it and missed by one inch which was, you know, devastating. And yeah, man, and, and that's what I do. Every night I get to camp, I'd set up my tarp and then you got to make a fire. And when everything is soaking wet, soaked, it's very hard to get a fire going. I can do it. It just takes time. You don't have a lighter. So you just have a, a, a ferrocerium rod, which throws out sparks. So what you got to do is it's driving rain. You're soaked. You got to find a standing dead tree because anything on the ground is going to be pretty much soaked right through a, a, a very challenging work to whittle out the dry center. So it's the inside of the tree you want. So the inside is dry. You got to bring that under your tarp. You got to split it out. You got to whittle little feather sticks, like little curls that'll light from a spark. You know, I'd be taking a Usnea moss, which is called old man's beard, drying that out, keeping it with my sleeping bag in a waterproof pack to try to like a waterproof compression sack to try to keep that dry, to use that as tinder, you know, but you're looking at like a long process to get a fire going, probably a couple hours to get a fire going because you got to whittle your tinder, then little, you know, matchstick size pieces, then cigar size pieces, then bigger, then bigger. And then eventually you can start putting the wet stuff on. So it was a process. And then I cook up all my mushrooms at night and I'd eat a whole bunch of these soggy boiled mushrooms. The other thing I tried eating was lily pad tubers out there and I reboiled them a few times, but they still almost made me barf because they're just so bitter. And yeah. And then I put them in my hat and I'd wake up the next morning and I'd just eat these like soggy ice cold mushrooms the next morning. There'd be like the odd slug in there. I'd just eat it. I called it the breakfast of champignons. <laughs> and then, yeah, and then I'd pack up. I, I usually set my tarp up in such a way that it would collect water because it was always raining. So I'd be able to scoop rainwater out of the back of my tarp. I put rocks there to kind of make a little catch. And then I just keep going the next day. But it was very mentally challenging because you don't know if you're going to get there that day. Like you don't have a map, right? And I guess this is kind of the reality too of a survival situation. You don't know if you're going to be saved that day or, or never, right? It could be the next minute. It could be, uh, you know, years. It could be never. So it, it can, plays with you mentally. And so I keep traveling, traveling, traveling and thinking that I was going to get there. And I think what they thought 
when they gave us this mission was going to be like four days. So they kind of alluded that, you know, it might be like a four day hike. I don't think they realized it was going to take us this long and be that challenging. So yeah, it was really, 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 really hard. You know, yeah, it looked hard. And I think the thing I learned from that is never underestimate a hike in a survival situation. Because I think people typically think like, oh, I've been on a 10-mile hike before. Not a problem. But you're on a trail. You guys didn't have trails. You didn't know when the hike was going to be over. You had to deal with the weather. Like sometimes I, I saw some people, they didn't even hike on some days because it just rained too much. It was just downpour. Yeah. And then the food, the food, the calorie element really came into play. I mean, you could see... Yeah, a lot of the contestants, they'd start off strong, but then as the days wore on, it just, they got slower and slower because they just didn't have the calories. Yeah. Yeah. Like, no way I could have done that survival hike on day 75, right? You know, but because at the beginning, I could really push myself despite the fact that I wasn't eating anything for, you know, other than these mushrooms, right? So, you know, and I'd try fishing, but, you know, it's, it's kind of like, you think you don't have a boat, right? And you come up to these ponds and there's, you know, probably trout in them. There's probably small rainbow trout in them, right? But, you know, the spot that you come out in, it's it's like the water's like six inches deep for many, many feet out from shore. And there's not going to be any fish there. You don't have a boat, really. How do you get out to where there might be fish, you know, without putting in a lot of effort and then potentially not catching anything. So I, I tried to fish in these lakes, but I think maybe the fish were just deeper, you know, and then maybe, maybe, oh, over on the other side of the lake, that could be a good spot. And then you, you bushwhack all around the lake and you're going through mud and you're trying to follow the shore, but there's boulders and you, you're on the side of a steep bank and it's super hard using a ton of energy. And then you get over to the spot that you thought would be good for fishing and you look down and it's too shallow. So, you know, I was trying to fish. I maybe had one spot. I put a lot of time trying, but I couldn't even get a bite. And, you know, I think maybe by that time it had just gotten colder and the fish had moved to a deeper water far away from shore. So I think, yeah, I think that a lot of people think, oh yeah, we're going to catch fish. I think sometimes because of those logistics, like I explained, you know, it can be more challenging than you assume it might be to actually catch fish in a survival situation. We're going to take a quick break for your words from our sponsors. Wedding season is coming up, and if you are preparing for the big day, I know wedding planning can be really intimidating, but finding the perfect suit shouldn't be. Indochino makes it easy to get a fully customizable suit right from your home. Don't just wear any suit on your big day. Wear a custom made-to-measure suit. Suit started at just $499, which is about the same price you'd pay for an off-the-rack suit at a department store. And they've also got custom made-to-measure shirts starting at just $89. So I've talked about my Indochino suit on the podcast before. They've been a longtime podcast sponsor. It's navy blue. The measuring process was super easy. They got these video guides you follow. You'll need another set of hands to help you out with that. But the really fun part is customizing it. Got to customize how I wanted the lapels on the jacket, the pockets, the lining. I went no pleats on the pants on this suit. A lot of fun. And then in a few weeks, you have a made-to-measure custom suit sent directly to your door. When planning your wedding, get a suit as unique as you with Indochino. Go to Indochino.com and use code MANLINESS to get 10% off any purchase of $399 or more. That's I-N-D-O-C-H-I-N-O.com, promo code MANLINESS. 
Did you know Fast Growing Trees is the biggest online nursery in the U.S. with more than 10,000 different kinds of plants and over 2 million happy customers in the United States? You can grow lemon, avocado, olive, or fig trees inside your home on top of the wide variety of houseplants available. Fast Growing Trees makes it easy to order online and your plants are shipped directly to your door in one to two days. And along with their 30-day Alive and Thrive guarantee, they offer a free plant consultation forever. So I use Fast Growing Trees to order not an indoor tree, but an outdoor tree. There is an oak tree that was in our front yard that died a few years ago due to heat stress. Had to cut it down. There's been a blank spot that I wanted to put another tree there. I wanted a maple tree that turned bright red during the fall. And I went on Fast Growing Trees, found the tree that fit the criteria that I was looking for. Turns bright red. It's a maple tree that turns bright red in the fall. So if you want to try Fast Growing Trees, right now they have some of the best deals online, like up to half off on select plants. And listeners to our show get an additional 15% off their first purchase when they use code MANLINESS at checkout. That's an additional 15% off at FastGrowingTrees.com using code MANLINESS at checkout. FastGrowingTrees.com, code MANLINESS, offers valid for a limited time. Terms and conditions may apply. Daylight saving time is starting up again. The goal of this is to give us more daylight from March through November. By setting our clocks forward, it may feel like there are more hours in the day, but if you're hiring, it doesn't necessarily help you find qualified candidates for your roles any sooner. There is only one way to do that, ZipRecruiter. And right now you can try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com manliness. ZipRecruiter works around the clock to help you find qualified candidates. Once you post your job on ZipRecruiter, they send it to 100 plus job sites so you can reach more of the right people. ZipRecruiter smart technology also quickly scans thousands of resumes to identify people whose skills and experience match your job. Spring forward with a new hiring partner, ZipRecruiter, and find top talent sooner. See why four out of five employers who post a job on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. Just go to this exclusive web address to try ZipRecruiter for free. ZipRecruiter.com slash manliness. Once again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash manliness. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Picture that thing you've always wanted to learn. All right, you got that in your head? Now picture learning it from the person who's literally the best at it in the world. That's what you get with Masterclass. This year, learn from the best to become your best with Masterclass. Masterclass offers over 180 world-class instructors, and many of these instructors are former AOM podcast guests. You can learn negotiation from Chris Voss, leadership skills from Jocko Willink, how to master your habits with James Clear. Plus, every new membership comes with a 30-day money-back guarantee, so there's no risk. So recently, I went through the Masterclass on negotiation with Chris Voss. A lot of useful information in there. Talked about the value of knowing a negotiation, how to use your body language and speech patterns to get your best out of a negotiation. Very well done. I really enjoyed it and got a lot out of it. Right now, listeners of our podcast can get an additional 15% off an annual membership at masterclass.com slash AOM. Get 15% off right now at masterclass.com slash AOM. Masterclass.com slash AOM. Check out the Masterclass on Negotiation with Chris Voss. And now back to the show. So if you read survival books, they, you know, they talk about the survival priorities. Like one of the first ones is shelter. Yeah. What did you guys use for shelter for your stay there? Yeah, I think that's for sure, you know, shelter, fire, water, food, you know, sometimes fire and shelter can be maybe arguably interchanged. But uh, yeah, I think that's super important. My brother and I, we actually, we didn't really, like, we're not in an area where 
we get those winters of minus 20, you know, and we had decent winter sleeping bags too, that were good down to minus 30. Of course, they don't really block wind. So we just, we basically ended up building, my brother is more or less sleeping in a tarp tent. Then we had a more substantial shelter going. And my brother was, you know, mostly focusing on trying to fish, trying to get food. And when I got there, he'd already started building a boat, but he hadn't put a ton of time in the shell into a shelter. So we had something more substantial going and we found that we just didn't have the resources at hand in our site to complete that shelter because, you know, everywhere else it was this, you know, stuff had been logged for the most part. And, but as we got to where our specific site was on the coast, there were no small trees. Everything was these gigantic trees right so you know thousand year old two thousand year old cedars and probably dug firs and hemlocks a lot of massive old hemlocks and you can't chop those down and drag them over to build a shelter so you know just to find the wood that we had and then we started everything's like an underground stream there so we had torrential downpour for days and days and days and like you know, even where we had our fireplace under the fireplace, there was like a stream going through. And when our fireplace dried out that dirt so much, it like collapsed into an underground stream. So like there's so much water, everything's so wet. And if it rains enough, that underground stream starts to come above land. So it's really crazy. If you're not used to this kind of environment, you can be, you know, set your tent up on a spot that looks perfectly dry and flat. And be sitting there, you know, all tickety boo, and you get a ton of rain, and all of a sudden your tent is in the bottom, pitched on a creek bed, right? So this started happening to us, and in, in watching the show, a lot of other people got swamped out. So my brother and I saw this was going to happen, and in the middle of the night, we ended up basically building a raised platform. So no matter what, if it flooded and if the bottom of our shelter turned into a stream, we would be off the ground. But I think it took 21 logs to build that platform. And that was all the small logs we had in our entire area, right? So I'm, I'm talking about hemlock is heavy, man. Like hemlock is a heavy, heavy wood. It's it's technically a soft wood, but you know, it's, it's the, probably the heaviest softwood. So, you know, imagine you're already gassed. I already walked, you know, uh, for eight days, bushwhacking through hell, eating freaking nothing but mushroom to show up and still have, you know, minimal, minimal food rations, working a lot, expending energy to try to get more food. And then, you know, putting whatever time we have into building this shelter and then all of a sudden having this push because we're about to get flooded. And at night, you know, probably two weeks into this with never having really a proper meal yet and expending a ton of effort, I'm bushwhacking in the dark, going through like steep up and down hills, like abrupt steep up and down hills through dense bush trying to find smaller trees, chopping down these hemlocks and dragging them back, you know, trying to keep boughs on them, trying to keep branches on them too, because we utilize those boughs as kind of a bedding mattress, pulling them through, cutting them up, laying them down. It took 
over 21 of these logs, and we're talking about, you know, two, four, maybe five inch thick logs to just make a platform for both of us to sleep in. And then, you know, stakes and a ridge pole. And after that, there was like no other material really for us to build a proper shelter. So we ended up basically just deciding that, uh, what we do is we just pull back on this bigger kind of shelter idea, sort of like a smaller kind of cabin idea. And we would just build this raised bed and then make like a tight A-frame. So we didn't really, we just had like a sleeping platform and it was open at both ends. So we'd have to crawl in from either ends, but it was like an A-frame with a tarp, right? So we, and then we had another tarp just adjacent to that outside where we would have our fire and that's basically all the shelter that we went with for the entire time now we we planned on getting out there and not going crazy with the shelter sort of maybe getting more established before putting a ton of energy into building a shelter because we're you know we're not we don't need the comforts of home so much my brother and I we don't really care about that so much right about a, a good shelter like we'll just sleep outside on the dirt really right so it ended up kind of becoming okay but what we did because we had this really cold winter is we would cut firewood and then as we were cooking our food, we'd heat up all these rocks around the fire. I don't think they showed this in the show, but we'd warm up all these rocks. And then we'd just tuck all those rocks in our pockets at the, you know, the small of our back down by our feet. And we'd have a toasty warm sleep because we had this wonderful heat source keeping us warm all night. The shelter thing was really interesting to watch all the contestants. You're trying to figure out because you're, it was basically, you're always doing these calculations like, okay, we can invest a lot in a shelter, but if you invest all that time and energy in a shelter, well, man, you're going to, you're going to wear yourself out. Yeah. But then also, as you said, there's the risk of, okay, you build this nice shelter, but then it's going to get flooded out. And so I, I, one of the takeaways I got there, maybe when you're in a survival situation, simpler is probably better when it comes to shelter. I think, I think, yeah, as simple as you can do it, but it really depends, right? Like when the season alone, when they're up on the Great Slave Lake in the Northwest Territories, north of 60, you know, you need that or you're going to freeze to death. You need a much more, as simpler as you can build it, you know, the faster, as long as it's efficient. It's about efficiency is what it's about, right? And, you know, that, that is, is mandatory, but you know, we won the show. So, you know, obviously we did something right as many things as we felt we could have done better. We obviously did something right. And I think the takeaway there is that you are reduced to the resources that are available in your area. And one of the things that we don't realize is when you get there, you very quickly become hungry and you very quickly lose energy and you don't have the energy. And maybe at certain point, this is like a shipwreck scenario at this point, you don't have the energy to just get up and bushwhack through hell to try to get somewhere over there where the grass might be greener only for the, the odds on finding a spot that is just the same as where you just were in all likelihood. You think, oh, we're going to build a shelter. Oh, well, there's all these wild edibles. You know, you can pick this as great. Are there any of them? Are there any of those things around you? You're going to build a shelter. Great. Are there any materials available to build that shelter around you? Right. 
If the answer is no, well, you know, at the answer, it's the, it's the other thing too, that we think that if you're this really good survivalist, that if you have all these skills and abilities, you know, you remember like in the movie Rambo, right? He was this like crazy badass that could, you know, you could drop him off naked at the North pole and he'd show up with a dog sled team and a, you know, polar bear jacket and all this kind of stuff. You know, the issue with that is that that would take like magic, right? Because it doesn't matter how good you are. If there's a finite amount of resources in your immediate immediate area, no matter how good you are, you can't manifest any more calories, you know, that, that are, are going to be harvestable, right? So you really are limited to that, to that reality, you know, when you're out there in a survival situation. So sometimes you, you just, you have to adapt, you have to do the best you can with what you have, but even no matter how good you are at times, you know, you might not be able to get a sufficient amount of food. And we're, we've forgotten so much how much food we eat, right? We've really lost touch with how much we eat because you don't realize that if you're expending all this energy and time goes by, you can't just get one more big meal and be right back where you were a week before after eating nothing right? You need a sustained amount of significant meals day after day after day to not feel very weak and to be on a slow decline to starving to death. Yeah, yeah, that was, I think, the biggest challenge was food for the contestants who made it past the first few weeks. Why? I mean, I thought was amazing or what I thought was interesting is a lot of the contestants, they washed out really fast because they just weren't mentally ready for it. But also some, they just got there's like little things like they just slipped and you fell and you think if you were in civilization, that wouldn't have been a problem. But when you're out in the wild, that's a problem. That's a big problem. Yeah. So it's so easy to kind of be an armchair quarterback because there's things you hear and you learn, but you don't really know them. There's only so far the language can go in articulating these things. You don't really know them until you're really out there. Right. So let's, when I went out there, I remember watching a previous season and it took a guy 21 days to build a boat. And he built a really nice boat, like a nice kayak. I guess it was maybe a little tippy, but it was just freaking beautiful. So I remember thinking, well, you know, geez, we want to build a boat, but we're going to go out there and we're going to build one not as pretty, but we're going to build it faster. You know, so then we have a boat right away. Geez, why did it take him so long to build that boat? And when I got out there and we built it, my brother was doing most of the boat building. It took him 21 days, the exact same length of time. And that is because I didn't realize the amount of time it takes each day to find food, catch, forage, you know, prepare that food, you know, cut firewood, cook and eat. And so then at the end of the day, you have a couple hours maybe to work on a project. One of the things that me and my brother built, which you didn't see or that I made was really nice cedar paddles. I did a really nice job of building these beautiful paddles. And then you just saw us using them. And I think people thought we were one of our items, but I built these paddles. But yeah, and then, and then so you're limited where as if you're at home and you're working on a project in your garage, you could bang off in three days what would take you two to three weeks out there. No, yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. So that's the difference. So that's that's my calculation from my experience. Three days, a project. Okay. So me and my brother, just for another little video that we did, we did for Field and Stream Magazine, building a tarp boat that we shot. It took us two days 
it was a hard two days, but it took us two days basically to build, to find the materials and build this tarp canoe on a loan that took us three weeks. Right. And, 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 and just, just kind of let that sit with you for a minute and, and compare that to so many other things. And that's something that I think we really don't understand. And so, so that brings us into kind of one of the myths, which is in that article um, for Field and Stream magazine that I wrote. And this is sort of a, a myth that I've never really, you know, I've read other articles on survival myths, but I've never seen this expressed probably because most people have never wisely have never fallen into a situation where they need to survive long-term like I did and sure as hell didn't do it for fun to test these things out, you know, because they didn't have a $500,000 reward. So yeah, you look at these survival books, then they have all these cool things in there, you know what I mean? And they have all these different kinds of shelters and they have all these different kinds of traps, right? And then you look at them and you're like, oh, maybe we'll build two shelters. You know, we'll build a shelter like this here. And then, you know, it's good to know all these different kinds of shelters. Don't get me wrong, because each shelter might take different materials to build and those materials may or may not be at hand. So the more different types of things you can build with, the better. But we're maybe we'll build a shelter here. Then if there's a good fishing spot down the coast, maybe we'll build a second shelter there and, you know, and then we'll, we'll build the boat and we'll build this and we'll do it. But in reality, it's like you can pick one or two of those things. You can't do all these things. Right. And so it's kind of a myth that you look at the survival book and you think in a survival situation, there's all these things that I can do. But in reality, you can't really. You can do like one or two of them and you have to choose wisely because it, it could, what you spend your energy on will potentially waste all that energy. And then you won't have the energy left to do anything else that actually would help you. Right. So it gets to a point where you're constrained by the walls of your own weakness. Yeah. I mean, it was interesting to see the, all the contestants, like the last three, like when they started doing things, they just talked in terms of calories. Like, well, that's going to take a lot of calories. Totally. So maybe I don't do that. Yeah. And, I mean, so you mentioned, so one of the myths, so you wrote this article talking about the myths of survival. You, you mentioned one of them there is like, uh, you can complete a whole bunch of uh, survival projects or like these bushcraft projects. And you're saying, no, you're limited. It's going to take you a lot longer because the calorie restrictions is going to prevent you some, from doing that. The calorie, the calorie restriction, but also the amount of time that it takes you to right. get those calories, to find yeah, right. those calories right. and then eat them. You only, you can't, you can't just work all day, day after day on projects. Right. Right. Maybe at the very beginning you have, for me, all that energy was soaked up through my hike. Right. So I think the takeaway here is that a lot of people think when they're out in the wild, they're going to be, be able to do all these survival projects, but projects, they take energy energy takes calories and then getting calories when you're out in the wild, that just takes a really long time. I mean, it's like most of your day trying to get food. So you're just not going to have either the energy or the time to do very many things. You and your brother did attempt a couple survival projects. You built a crab trap and that it seemed promising, but then it ended up, you ended up losing it. It sunk. And then you also built this really cool tarp boat, but then you found out using it took a lot of effort and then the fishing didn't turn out to be as effective as you hoped. So beyond the fish you did catch, what did you and your brother subsist on? The other thing we could get was limpets. And we learned that limpets are like these sort of half-shelled snails that cling to rocks and they're very hard to pry off. 
and you can't see very many of them in the daylight. But what we learned was that at night, at night is when you get these kind of super tides and the tide would go way out. So we ended up spending a lot of time at night because what would happen is the limpets we learned are nocturnal and they'd come out from under the rocks. And when they're on the move, you can just grab them and pick them off with your hands instead of, instead of having to like pry them off with a knife, right? So we'd come out and I get these, like we use our gaiters as basically foraging bags, these like ankle leg gaiters. And we just pick these, pick, 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 and just throw them all in, in these things. And then we get these other things called chitons or gum boots. They're also called, which have this, like these shells across the top, but they almost taste like chewing one of those super, super bouncy balls. And so they were like super hard to chew, but they were edible. And I actually cracked two molars and had to have a root canal when I got home from biting into one of these shells too hard that I didn't see because it was dark. And then the other thing that, so, but the thing is that, you know, there's, there's kind of this myth too, that, you know, on Vancouver, people say, oh, you'll never starve on the coast. But unfortunately, it's just not the case. Uh, Like these limpets, you know, they'll get you somewhere, but there's no fat in them. And we were eating shore crab, shell and all even. We just gave up on that because we realized it wasn't worth our effort. So there's no nutrients in it because, you know, the, the French Canadians call it mal de caribou, caribou sickness. It's also known as rabbit starvation. Uh, but the word, uh, the technical word for it is protein poisoning. And, you know, it means rabbits are so lean, no matter how many rabbits you get and snare or even lean venison or, or a, a moose, you know, you will still starve to death because your body will not be able to digest the protein. If you get a moose like early in the rut, like late August, there might be fat on it. But yeah, if you get a caribou, you know, with, with not a lot of fat on it, you could eat that freaking caribou. You could be eating steaks every day and you will still starve to death. So it's, there's another myth for you is that you think that you get out there and you harvest a moose that you're good. Well, not really. And so, you know, that's why you realize how important fat, fat is life, right? Like beaver to a lot of indigenous people in North America, beaver is very, very fatty and not just for the meat in the beaver, which is good, but that fat could be used in other things, right? Black bear has a lot of fat on it, right? Waterfowl. That's one thing I forgot to mention in the article. A lot of people, once uh, people got shotguns too, especially like the Northern Cree on James and Hudson Bay, where there's a lot of migration paths would focus on, you know, a lot of them would eat Geese and fish, you know, they wouldn't even, you know, sometimes they'd get some meat, some caribou, some moose, but they'd focus mostly on their diet through, you know, waterfowl and fish because waterfowl are really fatty. But without that, you know, you'll starve. And so that's what was happening to my brother and I. We were focusing on these these chitons and these these limpets and shore crabs. And one night I went out and I picked a thousand limpets. And we would eat, we'd boil them and we'd eat and we'd eat and we'd eat. And it just wasn't doing it for us. It was the weirdest feeling. Uh, but one thing we did have was we got into these things called gunnelfish, which are basically these gross writhing eels that can kind of breathe out of water. And uh, they'll kind of hide, you know, and breathe just through the kind of moisture on their gills and they'll hide under the rocks at low tide. So we go out when the tides are out and we'd lift these huge bowlers and flip them over. And we, you know, by close to the end, we'd be like literally blacking out. We'd have to sit down because we're, our energy levels were so low. 
and there'd be nothing. And you'd lift up a huge boulder and there'd be nothing. You'd sit down. Then you'd lift up a huge boulder and there'd be like five or six of these gunnelfish. And, you know, some of them were not longer than your pointer finger. And some of them were, were some of the biggest we caught fish we got the whole time. Like some of them were a foot long and you, we, you try to stab them. We just start stomping on them. That's how we figured we kill. We figured how we kill them the best way is you'd stomp on all these things. So that was actually some fish and there was like a sour tasting fish. It wasn't good, but that's actually was still fish. So I think even though we weren't able by angling methods really to get as enough fish to sustain us as long as we did, we were able to eat all these gunnel fish and that's what probably won us the show. Okay. So that's, I think it's interesting. Uh, even if you're eating food, it doesn't mean you're getting nourished necessarily because exactly. you got to have that fat component. Yeah. And that's definitely one of the myths. Like who, who thinks that you couldn't go out there, you know, especially after the rut, which is a moose, which is the, you know, uh, ungulate, uh, you know, of the deer family, their mating season, moose, elk, caribou, and all the different types of, of uh, deer, white-tailed deer, mule deer, black-tailed deer. You'd think that, you know, you get, a moose and you're good, you know, but it's just unfortunately not the case uh, because you need more fat or you just cannot digest that protein and you will still starve over the winter. So something you said you found out through this experience on alone is that practicing survival skills is not the same as practicing survival. What do you mean by that? Yeah, absolutely. That's, you know, and that's kind of what I was getting into when, you know, my concerns about going into this. Well, am I really like a survivalist? I do, I plan my trips and I do these extreme remote wilderness trips, but I'm bringing a good fishing rod with me, fishing rod reel, a backup one. I'm bringing, you know, good quality store-bought manufactured lures. I'm bringing a shotgun with me for bear protection or food if I, in season, if I have to. And, you know, all these, all these things. I, I'm bringing lighters. I don't just bring one lighter. I bring like 10 lighters. I throw them all in each bag just in case, right? But what I realized is that, you know, so put it this way, you can, practicing survival skills and real survival are two very different things. We could head out into the backyard and, and we could practice lighting a bow drill fire. That would be fun, but, you know, an enjoyable kind of skill to learn. But try that when you're exhausted soaking wet you have to source all the parts you just walk through hell for days on end you haven't eaten a thing on days on end and if you don't get this fire going you're going to die of hypothermia like that is terrifying it is not fun it's not a situation you want to be in so what happens is that somebody can learn a lot of different really cool survival situations, survival skills and bushcraft skills. But if they're never actually using them in a real scenario, in a scenario where they can't just walk back to their truck or walk back into their house instead, if it starts raining, they're never actually going to learn the actual mindset that survival actually takes. And so I remember I was on this trip and we were getting the tail end of Hurricane Irene in Labrador. And we were living like off of fish and berries for almost a third of our calories. And we did hunt some wild geese and stuff. And we were on a, you know, a 33 day expedition. And it was, we were soaking wet. We were cold. It was miserable out. Um, and I said, uh, I said to my buddy, Marty, I said, Marty's like, oh my God, how are we going to get a fire going? And I'm like, don't worry, Marty. This is a good opportunity to practice how to rig a tight camp when it's cold and raining. And he looks at me, he's like, 
this isn't practice, man. <laughs> this is the real thing, Jim. <laughs> and I just remember that being so funny. But sure enough, because I'm a nerd about this stuff, you know, I cut down that standing dead tree. I set up the tarp. We get a fire going under the tarp and we eat the under in the smoke and everything like that. And that situation, those situations I was in, you know, are the situations that give you those survival skills that you can't learn from a book that you can't learn on YouTube. And, and that skill is just being able to not give a crap and not giving a crap is probably the best survival skill. And the only way you get that skill is through real bush time. And typically that needs to be in areas that are pretty remote. Right. And, and where, where the weather's not always good, where you have to deal with getting tortured by mosquitoes to the point where you don't give a crap about the mosquitoes anymore, where, you know, you might have to, because you know, you say, are you, am I cold or you've been this cold before? And you know that, you know what, I am cold, but I'm not going to get hypothermia. So I'm just going to stop thinking about it because it's not really an issue because you've had that experience where for somebody else might be scared right? They might be scared that they're in danger. They might know all these survival skills, but they don't really know if they're in danger or not, or they're just not used to the discomfort. And a way you can start, you start to realize that you're getting this skill is through, you know, let's say you're out on a long adventure on a camping trip with other people and you're still having fun and they are not having fun anymore you're in the exact same situation as them. They're starting to complain. They're miserable. You're still having a wonderful time. You're in the same situation than them. It's just that you have learned to not give a crap anymore because of your, your experience on being able to rough it and knowing that it doesn't matter. And so that essentially is the best survival skill to have. And so, you know, that's why having survival skills, as long as you can get a fire going, like having all these survival skills from what alone is kind of proven, there's all these kind of survival experts on it. And, and some of them, it's usually the guys with the, the real bush time, the longest periods of time spending outdoors that do the best, not necessarily the guys with combat training, not necessarily the guys um, in these scenarios with the most primitive uh, skills. I don't like to use the word primitive, but the most traditional kind of skills aren't always the guys that win. It's the guys that can just kind of take it the hardest. You know what I mean? Yeah. So yeah, the, that's the the key to the mental game. Just don't give a crap. I think you can apply that. That's applicable to anything in life. Just don't give a crap. Sure. Yeah. I like that. Actually, I should start applying that to other, to other like trolls that troll me on my YouTube channel. <laughs> right. Yeah. You should trademark that. Don't give a crap. So you mentioned at the end of this thing, you lost about 25% of your body weight. Like what else health wise, what were you guys like? Did it just totally wreck you physically? I would say, yeah, like I was pretty ripped afterwards. My brother was like, kind of like looked emaciated. Um, like maybe cause I might've had this a little more fat and muscle than him going into it, even though I was bigger. So technically I take more calories to go into it. So th what they, what they tell you is they give you kind of a refreeding program. And this is part of the torture. You can't just like get back and just like hammer a freaking pizza, right? The torture continues because you have to slowly wean yourself onto food. You can't even eat anything. You'll like vomit if you try, right? And if you eat like a whole bunch of sugar all of a sudden, it, it can be like really, really bad. It could trigger horrible reactions in your body that could like, you know, kill you even. 
so I ended up kind of weaning myself back on, but then I kind of went, started going a little crazy. I had something called iritis, which is like arthritis of the eye, which is caused by refeeding syndrome. The doctors like don't know anything about this because, you know, which is testament to our society. Very few people are starving to death anymore. There's the Minnesota starvation experiment during uh, World War II where they starved, a, bu- a bunch of people starved. And uh, they, they tested them and, you know, they, they followed them. So they, we have learned about starvation through that. But in general, it's not really something doctors understand around here. And so I felt like I was hung over. I had a headache for like two months coming out of it, which was pretty miserable. And then eventually I was okay uh, afterwards. But yeah, if I, probably if I had been a little stricter on on a refeeding program regimen, I mean, the only thing doctors are kind of used to is the same thing that like a severe alcoholic who's not eating any food, who's malnourished, might experience when they're when they stop drinking um, because they've malnourished themselves. That would be like the only kind of comparable thing that doctors might deal with nowadays on average. So Jim, this has been a great conversation. Where can people go to learn more about your work and what you're doing these days? Yeah, I've been putting a lot of time into YouTube doing some awesome adventures, survival stuff and all that. Check out Jim Baird Adventurer on YouTube. I'm also on Instagram at JB Adventurer and uh, Facebook too, Jim Baird Adventurer. So follow me online, check out some of my videos and uh, drop a comment and say hi. Fantastic. Well, Jim Baird, thanks for your time. It's been a pleasure. Thank you, Brett. Thanks for having me. My guest today was Jim Baird. He was one of the winners of season four of Alone. You can find more information about his work at his YouTube channel, Jim Baird Adventurer. Also check out his articles on Field and Stream and check out our show notes at aom.is slash survival myths. We find links to resources where you can delve deeper into this topic. Well, that wraps up another edition of the AOM Podcast. Make sure to check out our website at artofmanliness.com where you can find our podcast archives as well as thousands of articles written over the years about pretty much anything you'd think of. And if you'd like to enjoy ad-free episodes of the AOM Podcast, you can do so on Stitcher Premium. Head over to stitcherpremium.com, sign up, use code MANLINESS at checkout for a free month trial. Once you're signed up, download the Stitcher app on Android iOS and you can start enjoying ad-free episodes of the AOM Podcast. And if you haven't done so already, I'd appreciate if you take one minute to give us a review on Apple Podcast or Spotify. It helps out a lot. And if you've done that already, thank you please consider sharing the show with a friend or family member who would think we get something out of it. As always, thank you for the continued support. Until next time, it's Brett McKay. Remind you to listen to the AOM Podcast, but put what you've heard into action. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. 
Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.